Hello again from the banks of Lost Creek in the beautiful foothills of the Cascade Mountain Range in Oregon. This is Doug Hooley talking to you from the studios of Doug Hooley Ministries, and you're listening to the Called Out Cafe podcast, now going out over YouTube in addition to all the regular podcast platforms. I am so happy to have some new YouTube listeners join me today. I'm <laughs> actually thrilled that any listeners are joining, <laughs> joining me today. You know, I get a few stats as to how many people listen to the podcast every day and from where they are in the world and, and the U.S. It's fascinating for me to watch these numbers. It's kind of a weird way <laughs> that I feel at least some kind of personal connection with you. God made me a really curious guy, and I always wonder what's going on when there's a sudden upsurge in listeners in a particular place. Now, I'm not saying that those upsurges always stay. <laughs> they go away about as fast as they come. And sometimes I can tell it's like one person who's downloaded a number of episodes, but other times there'll be like an upsurge in downloads from unique listeners from a particular state. I can't tell if they're like a community of people or if they're just random and unassociated. Well, I would love to hear from each and every one of you, but I would like to ask a special favor this week of anyone listening in Florida. Would you mind sending me a quick email and tell me who you are, introduce yourself to me, and how you came to listen to the Called Out Cafe? I know everyone's busy, but if you get a minute, my email address is doug at com. Drop me a line if you would. Well, like I say, I would love to hear from everyone who listens. I am so grateful for you all, and I get a lot of encouragement to continue the podcast when I feel like I'm talking to real brothers and sisters in Jesus rather than just numbers. Another thing I'd like you to ask is that you consider doing things like sharing the podcast, clicking like, and subscribing. Even though it is encouraging when that happens, this is not to stroke my ego, but to help me spread the message I'm trying to get out there through this podcast and books and the videos that I produce. Ultimately, all of what I'm trying to do here is to get the good news put back into the gospel and to help others along their journeys who, like me, have had the name of Jesus branded on their hearts. Well, if you ever go on YouTube, please take a look at the Doug Hooley Ministries YouTube channel and consider subscribing to it. I just did a new YouTube channel uh, trailer this week. It was kind of fun. More subscribers ultimately means better exposure. But enough of all that. This is episode number seven of the series titled, Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus. It's based on my latest book by the same title. By the way, <laughs> have you got your copy of the book yet? You're going to want to buy it by the end of this series. So why not order a copy now? They're available on Amazon.com. Go ahead and push pause <laughs> and head on over there right now and click the Buy Now button. We'll wait. Okay, we're back. Thanks for your order. But seriously, there's so much information in this book, you're going to come to use it as a reference on church history and what the New Testament has to say about the gathering of the ecclesia. I've gotten feedback from people that they're working through the book almost like a devotional as they're unlearning and relearning things they've been told and taught their entire lives about the church. This is ultimately leading people to being able to breathe again as the burden of man's religion is lifted from their shoulders and replaced 
with the light yoke of Jesus. Man, the freedom in Christ that comes from belonging to Him. The real and authentic freedom that can only come from the authentic Jesus of the Bible. It puts everything else we're wrestling with in this world into perspective, and it's so much easier to take. Well, we've been going through the book of Matthew and looking at what he recorded in his gospel about the ecclesia, what they're to do when the called out ones get together, what their purpose and function is when they do get together, and sometimes about what he does not have to say about when they get together. Today, we'll start out talking about the very foundation of the ecclesia, the only basis for it, the only reason the ecclesia exists, and we're going to try to get at the core of what that is. Well, let's look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 19. Many books have been written on the passage of Scripture where Jesus reveals the rock on which his ecclesia will be built. It's the first and one of the only three places the word ecclesia actually shows up in the Gospels. Matthew's Gospel is the only one which records the use of the word ecclesia, called out, ek kaleo. This is the passage of Scripture from which the Roman Catholic Church defends its doctrine of apostolic succession and the existence and authority of the office of Pope. Indeed, this is an often misunderstood passage. Understanding it is fundamental to understanding almost everything else about the ecclesia. I can't stress it enough. This is a beautiful and exciting passage. After asking his disciples who they had heard others say that he is, Jesus asked the same question of the entire group of disciples, not just Peter. Who do you, which he said plural, like you all, think that I am? Well, Peter answered for the group, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Get those two things, the Messiah and the Son of the living God. That's who they were saying that Jesus is. Well, Jesus responded that it was upon that rock, the correct Holy Spirit-provided answer rock, that his ecclesia will be built upon. Jesus explained that answer was based on belief that only comes through the revelation of the Holy Spirit and not from flesh and blood. It's the Holy Spirit that was responsible for and gets the credit for the answer, not Peter. The ecclesia is built on the belief, pistos, faith. It's the same thing. Pistos is sometimes translated as faith, sometimes translated as belief. But it's built on that belief in the rock of truth that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. Well, you've all probably heard that Peter, Petros, of course, translates into English as rock. Jesus used to play on words with Peter's name as a learning tool and pointing out Peter means rock. And the truth just spoken, that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, is the rock of belief that his people will cling to and hold in common. Because Peter's name means rock, the Roman Catholic Church claims that Peter himself is the rock in which the church is built upon. You may be surprised to learn that I completely agree with them. What do I mean by that? 
the human-manufactured universal church, a counterfeit of the ecclesia, may in fact be built upon a flawed and sinful human being named Peter, who just seven verses later Jesus calls Satan, and who infamously denies his association with Jesus three times. However, the true ecclesia is built only on the Holy Spirit-given belief in the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus. Jesus never said, Peter, you are the rock, and on you I will build my church. He said, and on this rock I will build my ecclesia. So the question is, what was this rock that Jesus spoke of? When we consider the entire framework of this passage and circumstances, Jesus is the rock, is the correct Holy Spirit-given answer to the question that Jesus had asked of his disciples, who do you all say that I am? History testifies that humans, when they lack true belief in God, have a propensity to follow their fellow man. Soon after the flood, they gathered in cities where the wisdom of man, not God, prevailed. When the Israelites left Egypt, they preferred worshiping and following an idol fashioned by the hands of man rather than God. Later, they called out for a human king to direct them instead of a God they could not see. The people closest to God built for themselves a complex, man-made religious system to be in bondage to rather than living by simple faith in God. Christians who lack belief are no different. They quickly replace God with a religious system, complete with a religious hierarchy and a man at the top in charge. The Pope, they say, sits in the place of Peter, their rock. Modern evangelicals are no different from the rest of Christians. They hardly know how to follow Jesus without meeting in a building with a cross on it and a key person in charge who oversees their gatherings. It's no coincidence that when Jesus spoke to his disciples, they were near Caesarea Philippi, literally on another rock, which was at a place known as the Gates of Hell. The Gates of Hell was a cave the pagans of Jesus' day had for a very long time, closely associated with many different pagan gods. It sits at the base of Mount Hermon, where they believed the sons of God, rebellious angels, came down and had sexual relations with the daughters of men, human females. That's spoken of in Genesis chapter 6. It was at the mouth of the cave that once a year worshipers of Pan, you know, the Greek god, god Pan, attempted to lure him out of the underworld by committing lewd acts, like having sex with goats. Ironically, it was in the midst of that evil place, on the rock, which was a part of the pagan holy site, that Jesus was declared to be the Messiah by his closest followers. This was an incredible taunt directed at Satan. Jesus' crucifixion was getting closer. The keys that Jesus gave to the disciples after they recognized him as the Messiah have been interpreted by the Roman Catholics to mean that Peter and all the popes who succeeded him were given the power to forgive the sins of anyone or withhold forgiveness. Along with telling Peter he would be given the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus also told him, Whatever you bind on the earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on the earth 
shall be loosed in heaven. Now, in context, it's the binding and loosing, or the locking and unlocking, that the keys are good for. But does this mean that Peter had the ability to call the shots on the earth on behalf of God and tell him what to do in heaven? Spoiler alert, I don't think so. But it's not insignificant that Jesus tells all the disciples this exact thing just a short time later. And when he does, it's in the context of the ecclesia gathering. This is not a coincidence. The only two places the ecclesia is mentioned by Jesus in the Gospels, he uses the same phrase, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Binding and loosing, or locking and unlocking, is not a responsibility, an office, or authority, or power that Jesus bestowed upon the man named Peter. This is something that's directed at the entire ecclesia, the called out, those who make up the society which is built on the rock of truth, that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. I'll talk more about the meaning of binding and loosing later. But what religious leaders have done with Peter, in genuine false religion fashion, robs the rich truth from this section of Scripture. Please understand, I am not down on Peter. I'm down on what people have done with this passage. And this passage has so very little to do with Peter. It has everything to do with the declaration of truth that only comes through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. And it comes within earshot of the dark, unseen forces of evil that were present that day, that Jesus is the Son of God. The act of having faith in Jesus is the very rock that the ecclesia exists upon. This passage serves as the largest symbol of the difference between the church and the ecclesia. It's the difference between a man-made religion, the church, and true faith in Jesus, the ecclesia. Man builds his church on man and man-made ideas. Peter is the symbol of that. The ecclesia is built on spirit, truth, and faith in Jesus. The ecclesia exists only because Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. It's only authentic faith in this rock of truth that allows anyone to be included in Jesus' ecclesia. The rest of the New Testament never conflicts with this principle. Anything we say the ecclesia is or does, anything we say is biblical, must agree with this simplest form of the gospel message. I feel like I could just keep repeating that all day, but let's move on. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. It's going to be dealing with sin in the ecclesia. Well, Matthew chapter 18, verse 17 is where the word ecclesia is used the second and third, which is the last time in all the Gospels combined. It's used in the context of holding others within the ecclesia accountable. We've already seen how false teachers should be biblically dealt with in the last few episodes. That instruction, found in Matthew chapter 7, only came a few verses after Jesus said, Judge not, lest you be judged. 
Now, why Jesus quickly turns around and instructs the called out to judge others after he says, judge not, is simple. After he says, judge not, Jesus goes on to say how to become a qualified judge. It's by removing hypocrisy from your life. Scripture makes it obvious that the called out have several circumstances when it's appropriate for them to judge others within the ecclesia. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus states how those within the ecclesia should judge and deal with a brother, you know, or by implication sister, when he or she has been sinned against by that brother or sister. Let me just read to you the passage of scripture in question here. This is Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the ecclesia. And if he refuses to listen even to the ecclesia, the called out ones, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So, as uncomfortable as it may be when you've been sinned against, the offender is to be confronted in private. If the person who committed the offense is unrepentant, you know, the guy or gal that sinned against you isn't sorry for what they did, they do it again as far as they're concerned, you're to take one or two others along with you and confront them again. I know all this sounds uncomfortable. This is what Jesus was teaching, right? However, the text states that the additional one or two people must also be, quote, witnesses, unquote, who can establish the fact that the transgression or the sin against you took place in general. This means they're going to, by their own personal observations of the circumstances, and not only by the victim's word, you know, uh, they're not just going by, well, I trust them, and this is what they said happened. But they are personal witnesses to it. However, this can be because they're eyewitnesses of the incident, or they've examined some sort of evidence after the fact. These additional witnesses need to be convinced by the evidence that the accused person has indeed sinned or transgressed against you or whoever the, the victim is. It may be that the original accuser has provided some sort of evidence to those who he's asking to go with him or confront the accused. You know, maybe it's a, a string of text messages or, you know, whatever. Well, as difficult as it may sound for those making the accusation and humiliating as it is for the accused, if the accused does not respond appropriately to the accusations of two or three witnesses, the painful move 
of taking the case against the offending brother or sister to the entire local ecclesia is to take place. So, if the one who committed the offense is still not repentant and refuses to listen to the ruling of the ecclesia, you know, the entire body of the called out, he or she is to be treated the same as the most despised unbeliever. This, at this point, is a person, according to Jesus, who does not belong among his ecclesia. This is a person who, through their actions, has demonstrated they do not recognize Jesus as their Lord. The Apostle Paul has much more to say about discipline inside the ecclesia. To me personally, I don't like this subject, but here it is. Jesus wants to talk about it, and Paul will later on, as we'll see. Well, Paul's words only reinforce what Jesus said. Paul also writes of judging others inside the church in legal matters, informing the ecclesia, the called out, in Corinth, that they should not be taking each other to court, to secular court. Rather, he tells them they should be handling their legal issues with one another inside the ecclesia. He points out how qualified the called out are for the job of judging when he writes, quote, this is from 1 Corinthians 6, 2 to verse 4, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more the things that pertain to this life? Paul points out what an utter failure it is when someone takes someone else to law in a secular court who's within the ecclesia, rather than accepting the wrong. He remarks, Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? What Paul is suggesting is that the ecclesia should handle their business with one another inside their community to the extent possible, like you would expect any family to do. James cautions about speaking evil of one another and asks the question, Who are you to judge another? This sounds contradictory to what I just said. Here's what James said. This is from James chapter 4, verses 11 to 12. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Well, James here urges us not to speak evil of our brothers. That's what he's talking about here. Rather, we should only speak the unembellished truth when the need arises. When you understand James' advice in this way, it's not contradictory, but it's in harmony with allowing God's truth to judge others. It's in the context of disciplining a brother that the scripture regarding wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them, is found. That is in addition to the well-known scripture Jesus has previously uttered, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Both of these famous statements by Jesus were in the context of holding a brother or sister accountable within his ecclesia. These sayings of Jesus were not 
in the context of healing the sick or gaining wealth or accomplishing what people believe to be great things for God. They were not even in the context of coming together to learn from Scripture. These sayings were in the context of a disciplinary proceeding, holding others accountable to the principle of whether they truly recognize Jesus as their Messiah as indicated by their actions. There is a couple of principles represented in this passage directly pertaining to the ecclesia. First, the fact that wherever two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus, he is there. This does not mean that the Son of God is limited in his omnipresence to only when people gather in his name. The Holy Spirit is the believer's constant companion. Jesus is reminding us that even in the middle of a difficult meeting, he is an active part of our coming together. It's no accident that this is only one of two places Jesus mentions his ecclesia in the Gospels, and he establishes this principle of his being present when the ecclesia is gathered. However, and this is a very crucial however, being gathered in the name of Jesus is far more complex than it sounds. There are billions of people who gather in the name of Jesus who are either engaging in an unbiblical gathering or gathering in the name of an unbiblical, inauthentic Jesus, or both. They may have crosses nailed to the outside of their building and call themselves the first church of what or whoever, but they do not worship or represent the authentic Jesus of the Bible or His will. That's the topic of my second book I wrote, False Christian Gods, Choose Your Jesus Wisely. There is nothing magical about the name of Jesus. <gasps> I'm sorry. Invoking His name when you are gathered only to do the will of the pastor or yourselves turns the name of Jesus into nothing more than noise. Gathering in, a, in such a way is like there is no better example of taking the Lord's name in vain. Well, second is the principle of relying on not one, but several members of the called out when it comes to deciding matters of significance. For example, in this passage, we see it's through the testimony of two or three credible witnesses that something can be established. This is not the first or the last place this principle is spoken of in the Bible. This reflects an Old Testament principle of credibility being established by two or three witnesses. You can look up Deuteronomy chapter 17.6 and Numbers chapter 35.30 if you want examples of this. The Apostle Paul cites this same criterion for accusing an elder in 1 Timothy 5.19. Also, you can see that in 2 Corinthians 13.1 where Paul says that every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Both of Paul's statements act as two additional witnesses along with what Jesus said to establish the very principle they're talking about. Jesus cites this principle in John 8:17. He refers to the law establishing that the testimony of two men is to be received as true. He's doing so because in that case, he's saying that he and his father are the two witnesses who are testifying as to who Jesus truly is. Later, in the book of Revelation, we see that God sends 
two witnesses, thereby establishing credibility to testify as to what is occurring for always getting something right or getting what we think we want. It represents a couple different biblical principles to apply to the ecclesia. These principles, like anything else in the Bible, can be used for evil when people's motivations are selfish and evil. James chapter 4 provides great insight and instruction regarding people's motivations and why things don't turn out the way that we think that they should, especially where it concerns the judging of others. I think it's worth taking the time here to read what's behind people's selfish motivations to do evil. Mind you, this is written to people who are among or within the ecclesia. This is James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and do not obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss and you may spend it on your own pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, The spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility cures worldliness. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. If the conflict which James wrote about in chapter 4 rages inside of us when we go to church, we're gathering only in our own self-centered name and not in the name of Jesus. If we're gathering because of a Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Bible, we're not gathering in the name of the Son of God, we're gathering in the name of a false God. If we're assembling for the sake of tradition, or the purpose of doing the will of the pastor, or anyone other than Jesus. It is not the Messiah we're following, and it is not Jesus who we can expect to be among us. If our motivation to gather is because we want to be a part of something positive that is bigger than ourselves, we would just be better off joining the Rotary Club. Gathering in the name of Jesus is not a part of a formula for getting what we want or predicting a perfect outcome. That's true even in the case where the ecclesia is worshiping the authentic Jesus of the Bible and seeking to please only Him and not tradition and doing so with a pure and humble heart. We're still subject to our imperfect human nature. Even so, Jesus assures us that we can trust that it is the will of God that will be done. He says this in Matthew 18, 18. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What? (laughs) Many have struggled with what this scripture means. 
It does not mean that we mortals, even the mortals who make up the ecclesia, the called out, are calling the shots on earth and in heaven. It means whatever decision the called out make and action they take here on earth, right or wrong, just or unjust, wise or stupid, they're to trust what happens is the will of God. Whatever takes place subsequently is the will of God. God is sovereign. He has written every detail. This passage is an assurance of God's sovereignty, not that Christians have power and authority to manipulate the universe. For those of you taking notes, I want to just give you some scriptures here to look up later. Um, Here's a bunch of references regarding God's sovereignty, which my claim relies on that he is absolutely sovereign. For starters, and this is just for starters, you can see Ephesians 1, 4 to 11, Romans 8, 28, Matthew 10, 29 to 31, Colossians 1, verses 16 to 17, James 4, verses 14 to 15, Revelation 4, 11, Isaiah 45, 7 to 9, Psalms, let's see, 115, 3. I know I'm rattling these off, but I have to. Proverbs 16, 33 and 19, 21, Job 42, verse 2, Lamentations 3, 37 to 39, Jeremiah 32, 17, and Acts 4, 27 to 28, all about the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign and in absolute control. Well, his assurance, Jesus' assurance that he is among the ecclesia and saying that whatever they bind and loose is okay with him is Jesus' way of saying, I got your back. Certainly, the called out of God will seek to do, uh, if you are a legitimate called out of God, it's going to be the desire of your heart to seek to do the right, just, and wise thing the pleasing thing to God. But in our humanness, even when we don't, because God is sovereign, we can know that what occurs is God's will. And Jesus is right there with us when we take whatever action it is that we take. Jesus is not going to abandon us because of our well-intended yet faulty actions. This includes when we put our heads together with other sinners, other members of the ecclesia, in the name of Jesus, and still act based on the sum total of our human inadequacy. Jesus' approval does not mean our actions will not have earthly ramifications. It might not be what some people call the, quote, perfect will of God, unquote, as opposed to his permissive will. Our earthly actions will obviously have earthly ramifications. However, regardless of what happens, God will honor what is bound and loosed on earth because we belong to His Son. Jesus will never leave us or abandon us from making a well-intended yet poor decision. When you, when you belong to Jesus, it appears that loyalty goes both ways. I've described it to people like this. It's like you have a boss who you know just absolutely loves you, 
from the day he decided to hire you. It's just obvious. He loves you. Of course, you screw up all the time, but it just doesn't seem to matter. He just keeps loving you no matter what. And he loves you so much that he's even put it in writing that no matter what you do, he is never going to fire you. Well, that's, you know, God's grace. When you belong to Jesus, like I say, loyalty goes both ways. Except his loyalty to us is perfect, and we screw up our end of the deal. Well, I've given you a lot to think about here with those things. A lot of things that you may have never heard before. Certainly, they are not the traditional teachings of the traditional conventional institution that we know of as the church. So I'll let you think about those things for this week and call her good for now. So until next time, when we pick it back up in the book of Matthew and see what else he has to say about the gathering of the ecclesia, God bless you and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com. Or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. (laughs) 